Good morning, everyone. It is indeed a privilege to be here. And uh, yes, it is for me the highlight of the week because we are here with God's people to celebrate God's name through God's word. So this is indeed the highlight for us. So my name is Fali, and I come from the country of Madagascar, and my wife and I are glad to be here. And uh, in amongst many reasons to try to correct a few you know, uh, wrong thinkings about Madagascar coming out of the, uh, of the cartoon that some of you maybe may know. And uh, yes, we, there are some people on the island, 24 million of them. So that's 24 million more than in the movie. And, and we are not governed by a talking monkey. So believe me, that movie is not accurate. And so if you want to find out more, indeed, come and talk to us. But we are, have a burden for our country uh, we are blessed to be here and be able to be trained into uh, God's Word at the Master Seminary, but we're also eager to go back and share and be a conduit of God's grace to our own people and having people coming to Christ and the saving knowledge of Christ there in our home country. But for today, we're going to focus on a, something specific, but to start us off, I wanted to ask you a question. Anyone here who loves video games? I know that like in the first service, oh, there's some more brave ones here because in the first service, they knew that Pastor Henry was here and they didn't want to raise their hands because they didn't want to be in counseling on Tuesday or something. And so, but people love more and more video games and we love even, you know, virtual reality. I saw that even you could put your phone in front of your eyes and walk around in virtual reality. Um, and why is it so popular? Why is it that people love it? Well, because it's fun, I know it's fun, but also because there is one characteristic about it. It is devoid of two things. It is devoid of real liability and devoid of real danger, right? Because when you play that game, you pretend to be somewhere. You pretend to be exposed to some kind of risks. You pretend to be exposed to that dangers, to all of those, you know, that army attacking you, whatever it is, that, that video game that you're playing. And so you like it because if there is a problem, you could, you know, if some th things do not go as you want them to go, you could always press reset. You could always start the game again. You could change those things that did not go wrong and try again and try to make them right. And so because of that, you're very comfortable there. But not so with life. With life, you are facing real dangers. You're really exposed to the things that are out there. And you are not having the opportunity to reset and start over again, right? When some things happen, if there's things that you do or things that you fail to do, you have to live then with the consequences of those choices that you make or that you fail to make. We're going to be today in the book of Ephesians. And let me first give you like a short overview of the book of Ephesians um, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible, and one of the reasons why is because of its structure. The first part, um, chapter 1 to 3, is the calling of the church. We could call it like that. And from, verse, from chapter 4 to 6, it is the conduct within the church or the conduct of the church. And in that second part, which where we're going to be at today, we can understand it with simply summarizing it with uh, six commands. Six commands. Five walks, one stand. Five walks, one stand. If someone asks you what the second part of Ephesians is, you could sum it up by that. And there's six key commands there. And so if you could follow along with me, start in chapter 4. Um, we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1, where the first walk there, it is to, the first command is to walk worthy. You know, Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore I, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk worthy 
of the calling you have received. The worth you give to your calling, your salvation, will be seen in your walk. So basically, if I want to measure or gauge your understanding of the value, the value you give to your salvation, I will see it in the way you walk. Do you walk worthy? That's the first walk. Second walk, chapter 4, verse 17, walk differently. Not only walk worthy, but walk differently. Chapter 4, verse 17, therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their thoughts. So our, our daily conduct will show will manifest that difference. The difference that the gospel made into our lives will be manifested in the way we walk. So we are called to walk worthy, to walk differently. And then chapter 5, verse 2, we are called to walk in love. Chapter 5, verse 2, and walk in love. As the Messiah also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Simply simply put, we are to walk in love by God's definition, not the world's definition. We are to walk in love by God's definition. Fourth walk, you could see there in chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the fourth walk is to walk as children of light, right? Um, And then the fifth one is in chapter 5, verse 15. And it tells us, pay careful attention then how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise The five kind of walk command is walk wisely. So that's a good summary of a Christian life. What does it mean to be a Christian? A Christian is one who walks worthy, who walks differently, who walks in love, who walks as a children of life, and who walks wisely because the time of the end is near. And then we come to our passage and Paul here changes the imagery and changes the verb he uses. No, he doesn't talk about walking He talks about standing. And so we come to our passage, which is in Ephesians chapter 6. If you are not there yet, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. And we will read starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. You could see there that Paul starts this section with an encouragement and a summary strategy reminder. Look there in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in the strength of his might. How many of you have seen an army and would be very confident looking at that army if as you look at them, you see the soldiers shaking? They're afraid and they're shaking. That doesn't look like a very scary army, right? Because if you go into the battle fearful, you will be a weak soldier. You will be easily overcome. And so Paul here starts on the outset to say, yes, the battle is real. There is a battle out there. But remember who is on your side. Remember who is with you and remember whose strength you are using for the battle. Not your strength, but his wouldn't that be more encouraging if you'd be into an army knowing that the one is on your side is the one who spoke everything into existence. The one whose power rose Christ from the dead. This is the one that is with you in this battle. And so as if it is not enough to encourage us and to make us bold for the battle, Paul also reminds us that God has given us a full armor to be used for that battle. And so we don't have only to go into the fight armed with just courage and a water pistol and a bare chest. God has given us a full armor. Look there in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Talking about those schemes of the devil, Thomas Brooks in an excellent book that I recommend you, is a Puritan, his book is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It says that that word there that is translated schemes or vials speaks about treacheries as come upon one's back by surprise, an ambush or stratagem of war whereby the enemy sets upon a man at unawares. And so he says, he continues by saying that it signifies such as are purposely, artificially, craftily set for taking, the, uh, for taking advantage of the prey as much as can be. So what is he saying? When the devil is scheming, he is planning purposely, artificially, and craftily to find ways to trick you. To find ways for you to go weak into the battle or to be defeated into that battle. The only other time this word schemes is used in the Bible is in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's turn there. Ephesians chapter 4 and we will start in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. So there it says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness, and here's our word, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. So what is Paul saying in this section? He's saying that the purpose of the church, the purpose of God's provision of his word through the apostle and the prophets, and that is now heralded by pastors and teachers, is so that every believer would be mature, would be a mature man filled up with Christ. So take it this way. Take Pastor Henry and Pastor Roger and all the other pastors and teachers that you have as coaches or trainers preparing you for the battle. For the battle, Because you are the army, but you are being prepared for that battle. And what does a mature Christian look like? 
It looks like one who stands in the middle of the schemes of the devil, as we just read. A mature Christian is one who is ready to stand. And so we go back to our passage there, and in Ephesians 6, uh, uh, chapter, verse 14, he tells us, stand firm, stand firm. In the light of the reality of the spiritual warfare, the mature Christian stands. In the middle of that spiritual batter, battle, a mature Christian is prepared, equipped, ready, and unmoved for the battle. And so, as the Apostle Paul talks to us about and gives us the kit that we have for battle, all the tools that we have for battle, one of the things that we need to be aware of is what are those tools used for? Why is it that Paul chose those tools to mention, uh, to, mention to us when he wants to prepare us for that spiritual battle? And to do so, he does so, sorry, because he wants to show us that those tools are there to address some of the strategies of Satan in order to deceive us. So today we will look at three strategies of the evil one to make us neglect the tools for spiritual war that we have and so that we would not be able to stand. And we will do so to look at those strategies so that we would be encouraged to be focused and faithful in the battle. And so you wondered about the title standing in 3D. It's because those three strategies that we're going to look at all starts with a D. So, you know, 3D. You know, three anyway. All right. Explain to your neighbor if he didn't get it. Okay. Um, so let's go. We'll start with the first one. And in verse 14, the first strategy that Satan uses to, to, to make us not take hold of that armor that we have is deception. Deception. Satan wants to deceive us. Still in his book, Thomas Brooke um, points out 12 ways by which Satan deceives us, but let me mention three of them to you. Satan deceives us by presenting the bait of sin and hiding the hook. Satan deceives us by painting sin in virtuous colors. And Satan deceives us by lessening sin and its effect, right? Makes you believe that sin is not that bad. You're not that bad of a person. You're not as worse as your neighbor. And so you try to compromise because you see sin as less than what it is. It has been its strategy from the beginning. Actually, that's what happened in the garden, right? Because what did he say to Eve? He came to Eve and deceived the humanity by perverting the truth. And this is it. And it did so with just four words. He came to Eve and he said, did God really say and those four words were sufficient to alter the rest of the course of mankind. Because there, there was a couple who enjoyed walking with God daily, enjoyed a peaceful life, an endless supply of food, job security. They were the only ones around. And a great societal status. And even though they had all of those conditions, those four words were enough to deceive them. With those four words... They chose to disobey God and to forsake all of the above, all of the benefits that they enjoyed with God. So who are we to think that we are better than them and that we would not be deceived by Satan too? 
We are to be watchful. Deception is all around us. Deception is in false teaching, in teaching that does not come from the Bible. The devil wants us to either find support for our own cravings or to cultivate unrighteous thoughts in our hearts. And that's the reality of false teachers as God describes them in Jeremiah 14, 14, for instance, where God says, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have never sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own mind. False, false teachers are people who are deceived themselves and who are actively deceiving others. Many of them may come to mind to you, right? As to people who are just speaking out of the deception of their own mind. There will be any teachers that do not teach from the truth of Scripture. But it is easy for us to shoot down those false teachers and to not think of our own sinfulness. Because our own hearts are evil factories. Adam and Eve, let's remember them, they ate willingly. They had succumbed to its visual appeal and the promise that was given to them about those fruits. And so Satan just had to give them a little nudge. And they went ahead and they ate the fruit. And we are exactly the same. That there is always that illusion that we have in our head that we would have done something better or that our life would be better if only we had, if only we had something different. And that is exactly the kind of thing that Satan would use to deceive us. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 talks about that reality of that warfare still going on for us. Now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, that's now, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. 2 Timothy 4 continues talking about that in verse 3 and 4. Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Let me put it this way. Without Christ and without His Word, we are easy and willing targets to deception. We are easy and willing targets to deception. One commentator puts it this way, non-Christians are in a condition of blindness and bondage. They are under a power greater than the will of man and from which only Christ can set them free. If that describes you today, if Christ is not yet the one who is controlling your life as your Lord and Savior, if you are struggling with sin, or if you are currently being deceived by waves of doctrines that are not coming from the Bible, I am here to tell you that there is hope. There is hope for you in Christ. Christ can set you free. And Christ can open your eyes through your own blindness. And Christ can make you aware of the real battle going on in the spiritual realm for your soul. In Christ, you can meet the evil powers with spiritual power. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says this. For though we live in the body... We do not wage war in an unspiritual way since the weapons of our warfare are not worldly but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. At the moment, if you're not yet in Christ, Satan and worldliness has a stronghold, has taken grip of your life. And you are not strong enough to release that, to release that grip. 
Only one thing could release that grip, and that is Christ, putting your faith in Christ. So I'm pleading with you today, if you're not yet in Christ, none of your tradition, none of your good behavior, none of your willpower, nothing that you do will be able to counter the devil's action or will be strong enough for you to oppose the deception of the devil. Actually, you are being deceived believing that you could do it with those means. Only one thing could make you stand, and that is placing your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you haven't done so, turn to Christ, repent from your sins, and accept the full armor that comes with salvation that will make you enable, that will enable you to stand against the deception of the devil. But if you are a believer here today, this is still valid for you because the battle is not less real when you become a believer, right? The, the battle even rages more when you become a believer. And because of that, you need to remember that that armor is yours, is yours to put, put on. You need to put it on and, and hold on to the promises that are mentioned in that armor. And we, the first one mentioned there is the belt of truth, right? Without the belt of truth, without, without truth, well, like the imagery of the belt, you're literally caught pants down. Without a belt, pants down, you know? And the, the belt here has an imagery of, uh, speaks of alertness, of readiness. And then the breastplate of righteousness talks about a protection for your heart so that your heart would not be deceived. You have that righteousness of Christ that, that has been imputed to you through the work of Christ on the cross when he took your sin and he placed his own righteousness on you so that you are declared righteous before a holy God. It is there for your own protection. It is there so that you would not be easily deceived. Jesus puts it this way, this way in John chapter 18, verse 37. John chapter 18, verse 37, Jesus says, I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this. Now, when Jesus starts like that, I want to listen to what comes afterwards, because it must be very important, right? He's giving you the purpose of him coming here in this world and he says I have come into this world to testify to the truth everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice what is Jesus saying here he says I came because I am truth and I came to testify of that truth to proclaim that truth so that those who were chosen before the foundation of the world to hear that truth will hear my voice and would obey that voice of truth and would not be deceived. Truth is a book, right? John chapter 17, verse 17 says, Sanctify them by your word. Your word is truth. But truth is ultimately a person. Christ is our truth. Christ is our righteousness. And there is great security in abiding in him. Sin is deceptive in nature. And it's not because you are a believer now that you would not be under the deception of sin. But if you abide in Christ, you will not fall pray to that deception easily one would say there is less opportunity for the devil to deceive you if you are seated at the foot of the cross right the closer your heart is drawn to study who christ is to study who who what he has done and to think about those things that he has done for you and the spiritual blessings that come from being in union with christ the more you ponder those things, the less you would be deceived. So abide in Christ. 
Stay close to your Savior. Continue to savor the truths of the gospel, which are the, which is the truth, of course, and which which is God's, which has made you righteous. I'm sorry, which has made you righteous. So invest time in reflecting on who He is and what He has done. But the devil is not only active in trying to deceive us. That's his first strategy. But the second aspect of his strategy is that he's also trying to distract us. So after deception, second thing we're going to look at from verse 15 to 17 is that the devil start to, tries to distract us. And that strategy is particularly applied by Satan to believers. He wants to distract believers. He will attempt to put so many other preoccupations in the believer's life so that that believer would forget the assurance that he has in Christ. Satan is trying to get us focused on anything else than the promises of the gospel. And when he does so, he has won a battle because he's making us weak. Trying to make us focus or rest our confidence on anything else but the gospel. We could see there in verse 15, he wants us to place our, our confidence elsewhere than the promises of the gospel. Or he's trying, verse 16, to distract us from upholding our faith. And verse 17, he's, he's trying to distract our minds with doubt of the certainty of our salvation. All of those pieces of the armor are not just randomly put there because uh, Paul was kind of thinking, what can I say next? You know, he is pointing to those area and he's pointing to those things because he wants us to realize the kind of battle that we are in and he wants you to be battle ready. If you look at those three pieces that we mentioned there, the soldier should be battle ready from head to toe, right? It talks about the helmet of salvation, it talks about the shield of faith, and it talks about the, the feet. There should be no area of weakness. And, well, he starts with the feet because, after all, what do you stand on? You stand on your feet. I mean, most of us, I know some of you could do handstands, but most of us would stand mainly on their, on their feet. And so if these feet are going to play a key role on the standing, they must be prepared for standing in battle, right? And here in this context, as he, uh, as he talks about, you know, uh, our feet being shod, being shod with the gospel, there, it, that word there is referring to putting on a special kind of sandals, not the kind of sandals that you would put on to go to the beach. It is talking about some kind of low half boots, uh, type of sandals with hollow-headed hobnails under them, tied up halfway to, uh, up, up the shin and stuffed with wool or fur so that they could be worn even in the cold weather. So picture that sandal and what it is for. That, that sandal is not done for you to run fast or to go somewhere. It is designed for you to be able to stand firm. You know, with those hobnails, they would go into the ground that you stand on and they will help you to stand firm. The intention here is to picture a soldier who is trying to protect, you know, his own camp or to, uh, to protect a, a, a castle or something. And as the enemy comes, as the enemy comes to him, he is ready. He is, his sandals are strapped and he is standing and he is not moving. He's ready to stand his ground, cold weather, hot weather, bring it. He is ready. The soldier is ready to stand. Because many are using this passage often to say that, to parallel it with uh, Romans 10, 15 or Matthew 10, 28 and say that Paul here is talking about evangelizing and going out and proclaiming the gospel. 
But I believe that in this context, it is clear that Paul is referring to another way by which we affirm the gospel to be true. And that is by the peace and tranquility that we manifest in the midst of attacks of the gospel. As we stand firm and we have that inner confidence amidst attacks from the outside, people are drawn to the gospel. We are proclaiming the gospel by our own confidence in that gospel. Paul is saying so in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, he's, he's saying it this way. For this reason, I also suffered these things, but I am not ashamed. So he is going through trials. He's suffering. Say, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says, I am ready for battle. I am ready in the battle. In a, and you could see that there, again echoed in Ephesians chapter 6. And as he continues in verse 16, he says, in addition to those, those sandals, he says, uh, in addition to that, we also have the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. When he talks about the shield there, he doesn't talk about just like a small shield. Those shield, that specific word that he used for shield, he's talking about a shield that is almost door size and door shaped. Okay, so it is a shield that is enough to cover the whole body. So as you stand behind those shield, your whole body is covered by that shield. And by the way, not only your whole body then, but all the other parts of the armor, right, who are on you, who, which you, dressed up, which you dress up with, are on you. But you have that shield which is in front of you and which is then your first line of defense. And what is that shield representing? That shield is representing our faith, right? Our faith is our first line of defense. As we stand firm in affirming what we believe in, the faith that we have, that is our first line of defense against the attacks of the evil one. 1 Peter 3.15 speaks of being always ready to make a defense of our faith. And so it's because of that that I see that faith as um, being a both-way tool, almost like um, Captain America's um, shield, you know, Captain America. So is it, uh, you could use that shield both for defense, so to defend yourself against the attacks and the flaming arrows of the evil one, but you, you could also use that shield for offense, for counter-offense, meaning that as they see you, as you stop the arrows coming from the evil one, you also are granted an opportunity to proclaim the truth of your faith, to proclaim the reason for your faith. And so as we stand firm in faith, as we stand there and we proclaim what we believe in, we are not only giving less opportunity for the devil to distract us, we are granted others an opportunity to know about that faith that we believe in. An unshakable faith in who God is and what he has promised is your first line of defense. Please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, there, of course, Peter is writing about something that he really, really knows well. He's been in a few battles and he's lost a few, right? He has denied his master and he has been restored. And so when he writes this, he writes with a life that testifies to the truthfulness and to the necessity of doing this. So 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 8, it says there, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, 
prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And then what comes next? But resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. What is Peter saying here? Yes, the devil is going to try to attack you, but stand firm. Resist him with your faith. Believe. Remember who you have believed in. Remember the salvation that has been granted to you. Remember who you are placing your faith into and stand firm. And remember as well, second part there of what we read, that you are not alone in this. Those sufferings that you are experiencing as you are standing, you're not the only one experiencing this. There are other Christians in the world who are experiencing that same suffering and who are standing as well. So stand, resist him, stay firm in your faith. If Satan can get your mind distracted away from battle preparation so that you would not nourish your mind and your heart with the promises of the gospel, he has succeeded and he will make you weak. And he could distract you in different ways. He can distract you by enticement or by intimidation. He, can, he could distract you if, for instance, you value friendship with the world more than you value your faith. So, for instance, you will not affirm your faith in the workplace because you are afraid for your career or your reputation at work. So you would rather keep silent because you don't want to affirm that faith. You can be distracted if you are fearful of the opinion of man, focusing on what they would think of you if you would tell them that you are a believer, a fundamentalist or, you know, a Bible thumper or whatever they call you. You can be distracted by the fear of the moral or maybe even physical consequence of standing for your faith. You can be distracted by having the wrong focus in your life, by focusing only on worldly matters, by getting more power, by getting more established, by getting more wealth, by getting more health, by taking care of your self-image. Or even you could be busy combating poverty or seeking social justice. There's nothing wrong with trying to feed the poor or to uh, advocate social justice. But the danger is to make that the main purpose and, per, uh, and per pursuit of your life then the devil has succeeded because here, us, the church, we're not here, we're not here primarily to feed, feed the poor. We are here primarily to represent our king. We are here primarily to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Satan could do anything either bluntly or subtly to deceive you and to get you busy with anything else than that, he has won a battle. He has won a battle. I don't know which way Satan distracts you. Does he distract you by discouragement, looking at the difficulty of the task? Does he distract you with sadness? Does he distract you with doubt? I'm not good enough for this. Or does he distract you with self-pity? Whatever the way he is using to distract you, do not let yourself be distracted. All of those are just means for him for, uh, so that you would not focus on what is essential and on the promises that you have in the gospel. He's trying to throw you out of that, of that road that you're walking on. He doesn't want you to walk worthy. He doesn't want you to walk differently. He doesn't want you to walk as a children of light. He doesn't want you to walk in love. And he doesn't want you to walk wisely. He wants you to be stargazing on the road. 
He wants you to look left and right so that you would not be looking at that objective that God has, be, has given you, which is to be a representative of the king, a soldier of the king. That's what you're here for. That's why God kept us on earth. It's to do that. Third strategy. Not only does he try to deceive us, not only does he try to use distraction on us, he also tries to use diversion on us. Diversion from verse 17 to 19. And some of you may say, eh, distraction, diversion, that's just semantics. That's pretty much the same thing. It's almost the same thing. The reason why I see it as different is that here the strategy of Satan is not only to get you stargazing on the path. He wants you completely off the path with no supply in hand, laid bare and exposed to his arrows. If deceiving was to make you walk on the wrong path and distraction was to make you not focus on the walk on that path, now the diversion is to take you off that path that you are walking on. And he's using means here. But he's trying to use means uh, to, to, um, to divert you from your path. First of all, he's trying to, verse six, 17 there you see, he's trying to, the, that armor is there to signal to us that he's trying to have us stop actively using God's word. He doesn't want us to use the sword the only offensive weapon that we have there in that armor, he doesn't want us to use it. He also seeks to have us stop praying, our means of communication with our commander. He doesn't want us to pray. And also, he doesn't have, if you see there also in verse 18 and 19, he doesn't want us to lean on one another. Note first that praying is not really part of the armor, but it is an accompaniment to the armor. The armor is useless without prayer. Prayer is ours for the walk and prayer is ours for standing in the warfare. So prayer is like your declaration of dependence upon God in the battle. And it goes like the kid's song, right? Read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day and you'll what? And you'll grow, right? That kid's, that kid's song is actually profound. Because it talks about the discipline that you must have and the commitment that you must have and the love that you must have for your commander so that you would daily, daily have time for him. How do you say, you know, I would love my God with all my heart, all my strength and all my mind and not spend time communicating with him. Not spend time hearing from him. When Satan distracts you by being too busy for reading your Bible in the morning... Or by Satan making you pray like it's a shopping list. You know, God, please give me this, please give me this, please give me this. Satan has succeeded in making you lose part of your armor. And not using your armor as you should be using it. And so you're going into the battle without your weapon, God's word, and your means of communication, which is your commander. And he also wants to strip you away from going into the battle with the rest of God's army, the church. The church. Because it is so easy to stay home on a Sunday morning, right? But every time you come here, as one of my um, favorite teacher would say, Dr. Abner Chow, every time you are here at church, you are proclaiming that the gospel wins. You being here, did you know that? Did you know that? That you being here is something bigger than you just coming here and trying to be fed. You being here is a declaration to the rest of the universe that God won. That the gospel wins. 
Because in, it is big, it is really big that God has had a plan and that his plan succeeded against the schemes of the devil. Because in Christ, not only did God make a new man, and that is the emphasis that Paul puts in Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10, but he has also created a new humanity. And that's the emphasis of uh, Ephesians 2 verse 11 to 22, where we are created into a new humanity, the church, a new race, a new entity, a new nation that we have here as God brings people together from all different people groups to become the church. I mean, just look at this room. Someone from Madagascar, someone in China, from China, and someone from America together in a room. It could sound like it starts like one of those bad jokes, you know, an American, a Chinese, and a Malagasy are in one room. No, but that's not a bad joke. That's the church. That's the church. And it is a full expression of the reversal of the effect of sin that we saw in Babel. As sin separated and scattered people around the world, now God is saying, Satan, your plans are defeated. Look at the church. In the church, people are not scattered. They come together and they become one body because they are under the same headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are there to submit to that lordship and to worship that king. Satan, you lost. Every time you come to church, remember that as a motivation to wake up on Sunday mornings. Because when you come, you're saying the gospel wins. The gospel wins. I'm going to go with the other members of, of the body of Christ. The gospel wins. That's what you're saying when you're coming here. Ephesians 3.10 puts it that way, right? That the manifold wisdom of God might, might be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. When the angels and the demons and all of those principalities in the unseen world look at the church, they say, wisdom, wisdom, God is wise. God has designed this entity that looks like no one else, like nothing else that existed. And God has made this possible. And God is wise. Because indeed, friends, we've been focusing on the strategies of the devil, right? Trying to deceive us, trying to distract us, and trying to uh, lead us astray, pretty much to divert us from the truth. But there's one thing that I want to be clear here. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who lives in the world. I hope that you have that absolute confidence in you that the final, not only the final victory is certain, but your victory in daily struggles of life is also possible in Christ Jesus. God's armor is effective and sufficient. And Paul reminds them to you so that you would first be reminded that you are indeed in a war, but that you would be encouraged in knowing that victory is possible. Victory is possible. Some of you might be wondering, what does that have to do with missions? I mean, isn't he supposed to be a missionary? Isn't he supposed to be talking about missions or something, you know? And as you think about that, I want to tell you, this is mission. This has everything to do with missions. Because missions is nothing else than us standing firm. Than us in this dark world being there as soldiers of the living God and proclaiming to the watching world who he is and what he has done. That is missions. Whether you do it to the ends of the world, the world in Madagascar or wherever else, or you do it in the supermarket next door, or, with, uh, or, as you, or as you take the lift with your neighbor, that is mission. Our call is to be a soldier of Jesus Christ wherever he has placed us. Please turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
2 Timothy chapter 2. In verse 3 and 4, it says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. If you're a believer here today, you are a soldier in the Lord's army. He has enlisted you. So do not be distracted. Do not be deceived. Do not, le- uh, do not lose sight of who you are. You are a soldier. Do not lose sight of whose you are. You are a soldier of the living God. And do not lose sight of who you are to please with your life. You are a soldier. You are not the general of your life. You do not call the shots. He calls the shots. You are enrolled in the Lord's army. You are not in some sort of spiritual holiday where you can consider God as a cosmic butler who could just, you know, supply your needs as you are sitting there by the beach and enjoying some kind of holidays. That's not Christian life. You are not called to be lazy, sloppy, or cowering. You are a soldier. You are called to stand firm. In this dark world, we desperately need that witness for Christ. You do not belong to yourself anymore. Christ bought you with his blood, as 1 Corinthians 6, 19 reminds us. He is the master of your life. You belong to him. You are at his disposal. The reason for you to breathe God's air is so that you would proclaim who he is, where he has placed you. You have been enlisted for duty. Do not be distracted and go AWOL, busy with your own agenda and pursuing petty pursuits in your life and forgetting who you are supposed to be pleasing. A missionary out in the jungles of Guinea sent this letter to his friends at home. Listen with me as to what he wrote to his friends. Man, it is great to be in the thick of the fight to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, to have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander and disease. He doesn't waste time on a lukewarm bunch. He hits good and hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you are on your back with fever and at your last ounce of strength, when some of your convert backslide when you learn that your most promising inquirers are only fooling when your mail gets held up and some don't bother answering your letters is that the time to put on mourning no sir that's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah the old fellow's getting it in the neck and he's hitting back heaven is leaning over the battlements and watching and asking, will he stick with it? And as they, in the context is talking about the angels, and as the angels see who is with us, and as they see the unlimited reserves, the boundless resources, and as they see the impossibility of failure, how disgusted and sad they must be when we run away. Glory to God. We are not going to run away. We're going to stand. End quote. Are you going to stand? Like this missionary, are you, do you have that same kind of resolve? Are you the kind of flip-flop Christian that just puts a nice t-shirt on to pretend that you are a Christian 
and leaving the army behind? Are you one that is keen to be prepared for battle and that is battle ready, ready to go into the battle? And are you as well, as corporately, as a church, are you a pillar and support of the truth, praying for one another, and by doing so, being a visible witness of the victory of God over the forces of darkness? We don't need to go somewhere far away to be on the mission field. Where you are is your mission field. Where you are is your field of battle. I pray that God, your God, the God that you worship is so big in your heart that you would be ready to walk no matter what. And that you would be ready to stand firm no matter, no matter what. Do not let the devil's distraction, deception, and diversion lead you away from the hope and holiness that must characterize you as Christ's bride, as a member of this church. Stand firm. Do not look back. Do not look around at your circumstances. Look at the hope that you are given in Christ and proclaim that gospel in which that hope rests. With your life and with your words. Proclaim our King. Be a soldier of the great King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are indeed so fickle. It is so easy for us to lose sight of who you are, of who we are, and what we are here for. I pray, Lord, that as we spend time in your word this morning, it helped us to refocus our minds, refocus our hearts, and refocus our lives as to what really matters. May you help my brothers and sisters here to be active soldiers on duty, to be ready for the battle, and to be bold proclaimers of the truth and the beauty of the gospel, of the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the magnificence of the promises that we have in him. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.